of the Basketball Card Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Uh, you can reach me at the Real 27 Guy on Instagram. You can also reach me at basketballcardfanatic at gmail.com. Welcome again to episode number 55. I'd like to thank all the new subscribers to the magazine and to the podcast for joining us here today. Um, I usually do a review of the magazine um, and do a whole episode on that. But I also uh, promised via my Instagram that I would do a mailbag. And I'd hate to, I'd hate, hate to make myself a liar. So um, I'm going to spend the bulk of today uh, doing a, um, answering all the, not all the questions, but answering a lot of the questions um, from the mailbag. But I thought first I'd take just a few moments to review um, issue four and then we'll get to the mailbag stuff. The first thing that I want to do on issue four is this. Thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who subscribed. And thank you for those of you who, who have supported the magazine. It is, um, it is awesome and it's getting better in every, in every issue. Um, I want to thank, um, well actually, I'm not going to go through, through all the thanks, but I do want to thank all of those people who are, who are helping um, both through subscribing and through supporting. So let's let's do a let's do a brief rundown of issue four of Basketball Card Fanatic. Um, issue four starts with an interview that I did with Fifth Down Sports. Uh, Fifth Down uh, Fifth Down is Andy Spellman, uh, and Andy is an an investor based in Boston, and he is so smart, guys. Oh my goodness, is Andy incredibly smart? Um, his perspective in this article was fantastic. Um, he talks a lot about why he's about what he has been buying, and um, about why he is a buyer of sports cards, um, along the lines of um, several other people who uh, you've heard from recently, including Lior, who I interviewed in issue two. Andy walks this line of being a collector and an investor in a really interesting way. Um, he's so smart, guys. And his perspective on where the hobby is going, and uh, and not just in the sort of way that you've heard other people talk about it, but like he's really smart. And I know I keep saying that. I think that's the third time I've said that. Um, I just couldn't have been more impressed with him and getting to know him a little bit. Um, his his answers were compelling um, about about the market in general, but then he also talked about why he's or what he's been picking up recently. And if you don't follow him, definitely go give him a follow. Um, his collection is fantastic. He has picked up quite a haul of exquisite logo men as of as of late, and he has um, everything from the Kobe green that is on the cover of the magazine to. Um, any other number of rare parallels and rare cards. Um, you have a, I, we all have a lot to learn from Andy. So that to me was the highlight of this issue and uh, I'd invite you to take a look at that. But I want to tell you about some of the other articles as well. Um, but briefly, Kyle underscore collects at Kyle underscore collects wrote an article called X marks the spot. And what he did really is he researched the history of the XRC 
and walked us through uh, the, the price differences and the population differences between some of the XRCs and regular rookie cards. And I learned a lot as I read through that. The granddaddy of them all, the Scott's Potato Chips uh, article, was um, by Josh at Midwest Vintage Cards. And it was a good look at a vintage set that is an unusual one that you probably haven't heard of before and has some interesting details there. Then we heard from Justin at 610 Sports Cards. You all know Justin. He's um, one of the smartest people in the hobby and uh, has a lot of passion. He's really well known. He's been around for a long time. Uh, if you've if you've been a collector for a long time, you know you know him. I approached Justin and uh, and asked him if he'd be interested in writing an article for the magazine on uh, autographs of the big three, uh, Kobe, LeBron, and Jordan, and. He, um, he wrote that. The article is called One of 107. There are 107 on-card autographs that, fe- that feature, or on-card cards that feature those three athletes' autographs. And he talks about those. He talks about the history of, um, of multi-autograph cards. And he does it in only the way that Justin can. Justin's got his very unique style, and uh, and it was brilliant. It was a wonderful piece, and I was uh, it was a pleasure to be able to publish that. Um, so yeah, check that out. Then we had a personal story, um, which is by uh, Alex underscore Jardine three two one. It's a story about overcoming addiction. Not something that you would uh, think you'd find in a basketball card magazine, right? But it's about how he, um, it's about how Alex um, uh, used basketball cards to help him overcome that addiction. And so I think you'll like that. Next up is Why It's Art. My uh, My favorite piece pretty much every month is Kevin's Why It's Art, Black Griffin's Why It's Art. And this one is about not a specific set as he'd done in the in the previous issues but about autographs um, this doesn't come through in in the in the article but Ke- but Kevin's not actually a collector of autograph cards um, at least that's not the key part of his collection his article is um, references several pieces of artwork artwork and how they go through um, how they go through sort of a process of multiple contributors and how card and he, he relates that to autograph cards that come out of packs where they're really like the product of multiple um, multiple people right you've got the producer of the card and then the person who signs the card and he talks about he references like various kinds of artwork and how how they do that same thing and how hard that is to get it right on cards and how most cards get it wrong um, I Every time I read something that Kevin writes, I come out of it on the other end thinking, uh, thinking in a way that I haven't thought about it before. Um, I'm a big autograph card collector. I still I needed to read this to think about things differently. Um, he, he his brain and my brain probably couldn't work any more differently than they do, which is why it's interesting that we're partners in this basketball card fanatic uh, magazine thing um and i think i think we work really well together but he guys he's he's a genius he's so smart and um and that that article by itself is worth the price of admission so i invite you to read that 
to read that. And then the last piece is the biggest transaction in the history of the hobby, which is about um, PSA being purchased by Nat Turner and a group of investors. I've had a lot of people who have had uh, who have requested that I talk about that. Um, given you know that I had the the article or the uh, interview with Nat. Uh, in the, the weeks prior to he, he and that group of investors purchasing PSA. Um, it was a pleasure to have that. Um, it was a pleasure to do that interview. And um, I just couldn't thank Nat enough for helping legitimize the magazine in that, in that way. I think if you look back at that interview, it's really interesting, some of the things that he says. He gives BGS credit in places that you wouldn't expect that he would um, knowing at that point likely that he was going to be um, a competitor. Um, but I think the thing that you learn about Nat is that he's just a pretty straight shooter. He says what he really thinks. And um, you know where where I think a lot of people would have had me edit that article more, uh, ed- edit it more, I gave him the chance and he just said, yeah, just run it. He just, he's he, he was a pleasure to interview guys. And... Uh, this article here is is about that um, is about that that giant transaction. So the article or the the magazine's twenty four pages long. That's that's what it covers. It is the fourth one, and the fifth one will will release next. Um, will re- release the second Saturday of January, which I believe is January 9th. So um, you know that's less than four weeks away. And uh, as always, we invite you guys, if you're interested, to uh, subscribe to the magazine. You can get it through basketballcardfanatic at gmail.com. PayPal, uh, you can send PayPal to that PayPal address. The other thing that you can do is you can go to paypal.me slash basketballcard. Uh, the, the subscribership is growing, and it's been an awesome ride so far. But that is not the point of this uh, episode. It's not the, the point of this episode is to not try to get you to subscribe, but... Uh, obviously, if you want to, go do it. The point of this episode is to talk about the, this mailbag. I had 30-something questions come across, some common themes, um, and um, I want to hit a lot of these things today. I'm probably not going to hit all of them. We're already, how many, 10 minutes in? Yeah, we're already 10 minutes in, and I'm hoping this episode is only about a half an hour, so we'll see if we can do it. All right, so... Um, yesterday, which was, uh, I'm recording this on the night, on Wednesday, Wednesday, the night of uh, December 16th. So Tuesday, December 15th, I sent out a question, a couple questions to people saying, hey, uh, via my Instagram saying, hey, what would you like to hear me talk about on, on the episode? And I had a whole bunch of responses. So let's, let's talk about some of those responses. So the first question that I got was from... Uh, Instagram user cardboard underscored vault, one of the positive, awesome members of our community, and he hit me with a litany of uh, not a litany. He hit me with three different topics. He hit me with these. He says jazz talk. He's a jazz fan, loves Donovan Mitchell. Um, so jazz talk, Luca Zion mania, Panini one and one. He says that's all I got right now. Let's hit each of those real, real fast. I'll give each one of them sixty seconds. So jazz talk, the last thing that you guys probably want to hear me talk about. But guys, I am probably the biggest jazz fan that any of you guys know. I've been a jazz fan my whole life, uh, born and raised in Utah, love the jazz. And last year was a, it's interesting, like people, people are so high on the nuggets and people are not high on the jazz, but guys, that, that series was a coin flip. 
I've never seen as much of a coin flip series as that one was. Um, multiple overtimes, and the very last, the very last play, go the ball, the ball, the Mike Conley shot goes halfway down, and then comes up. The Jazz just as easily could have won that series as the Nuggets. They didn't, and then the Nuggets go and they beat the Clippers, and they go to the conference finals, and now everybody loves the Nuggets, and that's great. But like, they and the Jazz were really on the same level, like literally a coin flip. It could not have been closer than it was. Um, and the Jazz were missing their third best player in Bojan Bogdanovic for, for the whole series. And the Jazz just added Derek Favors to a team that is already really good. Um, I think that the Jazz have a chance. I always, I mean, I always am optimistic about the Jazz, but I think the Jazz have some real flexibility now. They got a crap year out of Mike Conley, and um, and I have to believe that he's got a chance to be better than he was last year. Donovan's going to be better than he was last year, and Rudy is still, you know, moving into his prime. Um, you know, the the young guys should get better. The old guys in Conley and Ingles are the ones that could could potentially decrease, but Conley had such a bad year, guys. I just it's hard for me to understand how he could be worse. But having said that, you, you never say never. So I'm hyped about the Jazz, and I think that they have a chance to, um, given their increase in depth, be as good as the second-ranked team in the West. Nobody is keep is catching the the Lakers. More on LA. There are several questions on LA, and that I'll that I'll answer here later in the podcast. Um, but I definitely think they have a chance to beat. I mean, who, who's definitely better than them? Like besides the Lakers, I mean, would you definitely take the Clippers over the Jazz? I wouldn't. I mean, I don't know, guys. Like the Clippers have a lot to prove. You know, they switch out their coach. They, I, I don't know. Is it? I mean, the Rockets are are not there anymore. The Nuggets are going to be competitive. Um, the Thunder aren't going to be there anymore. The Mavs are going to be good, but I wouldn't take the Mavs over the Jazz. You know, Luka's amazing. Luka's, Luka's the most valuable contract in the NBA. But I wouldn't take, you know, take Luka over just about anybody. I wouldn't take the rest of their team over just about anybody. Uh, although Rick Carlisle's just a genius. So, I don't know. I think the Jazz have a chance to be really good. Uh, I said I'd take one a minute. I think I took three. I probably lost half of the people who are listening. <laughs> Your fault. Uh, cardboard underscored vault. Uh, Luca Zion mania. You know, rookies to me are, are for the are really like I'm just gonna be really honest. Rookies are the the least um, persuasive investments that that they've ever been to me. Uh, the way that the market has blown up has created over the course of the last several years now uh, rookie cards that are prices that are not worth investing in. There was a time where I would I could invest in I bought a an Anthony Davis uh, number 23 of 99 is jersey numbered immaculate RPA and I paid $1200 for it. That really happened. I really did buy that card for 1200 bucks. I bought the acetate and immaculate or immaculate Anthony Davis 1 of 23 for it was like $4000. Um, I, or no, it was less than that. I sold it for 4,000. I think I bought it for, I think I bought it for like 1,500 bucks. Might have, I, I don't remember for sure. But 
Guys, cards are, the rookie cards right now are so expensive. Some of them will surely pan out, but I just think over the long haul, the the entry point for rookies right now is too scary for me. So I don't really have a lot to say on that, but but both Luca and uh, Zion have a chance to be amazing. I just wish they weren't both in the Western Conference. It feels like every great player ends up in the Western Conference. The East just has to figure out a way to close the gap. Um, Panini 1-1 one one is really interesting. The I think they're called Timeless Memories autographs are really nice. I think everybody likes those. Those are universally a hit, but also the base cards and the some of the inserts are, are really well done as well. I've heard a lot of people say it's the product of the year. I love it when a product comes out like that that is, um, that is a first year that everybody loves. I don't love the set configuration. You know, if you're trying to figure out from a rookie perspective which card is the card to have, some people would say it's the RPA. Some people would say it's the base card. It's not really clear. Um, but maybe I'll, maybe that's just me. Maybe I just need to look at it more. So those are my thoughts on, on those three topics, and uh, thanks for, for thanks for the question on that, man. 916 Collector says, eBay searching strategies. I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, I have some searches that I consider almost like proprietary to help me find um, things that I think are, are worth bidding on. The thing that I would tell you is um, one of those things that somebody says all that people say all the time, which is just really be patient. Um, in a lot of cases, you, you know, you'll have three items that are that are identical, that are listed identically the same way, this at similar times, but one of them is going to sell for least for the for the least. Um, if you're somebody out there who's buying something that's readily available, then compete on price. You know, look for opportunities to save on price. But if you're looking for something that is that is very different, um, you know, searching eBay can be helpful. Um, searching listings as they as they come up and as they're ending it can be really helpful. But also, if you're looking for something really specific, um, going out and, and understanding who is in the community and who might be able to help you uh, can be very helpful as well. Talking to people and understanding, you know, what they who's who's opening stuff watching breaks those are some different ways to find things but uh i don't want to give away too much of my secret sauce there on uh finding good deals but that's that's probably what i feel comfortable saying so good question nine nine one six collector all right second city sports cards asks a question that is definitely a popular topic of conversation right now he says are funds distorting the actual value of cards when he says funds, he's talking about alternative investment funds. I'll remind everybody that I work in the alternative investment fund space. I work for a growth, I work for a, um, we've traditionally called ourselves a growth equity provider. Private, uh, growth sits between sort of private equity and venture capital, but um, I, I, um, I don't, uh, we aren't just growth anymore. We're a multi-practice firm. We have venture, private equity, growth, uh, buyout, um, you know, we have food and beverage. We have a lot of different types of funds. And I'm the controller at the firm and um, do a lot of accounting work and listen to uh, conversations where really smart investors um, talk about these things. So I understand how funds work, and I did work on hedge funds for years. I proposed a hedge fund of basketball cards or sports cards and talked to several people about this years ago. This is something I've been thinking about for years. And between the funds and the fractional ownership um, shops, 
there has definitely been a huge impact on the valuation of cards, not just because of how they're spending money, um, not just because of how those entities are spending money, but also because of how people view the market because those entities are spending money. I think the end buyer, or I shouldn't say the end buyer, investors are watching these other entities come in and they realize, oh, if those entities are coming in, then it is interesting for me to also be buying these cards. So are they changing, or the question is, are they distorting the actual value of cards? The actual value of something is what we've always said is, is what somebody's willing to pay. Well, if a fund is willing to pay an amount, that may not be an individual, but it is a real price. And that price is based on diligence and analytics and projections of where the market's going to go. Um, but when, but the other quite the other thing that he might be asking here, as he uses the word distorting, is, you know, are they are they changing the market in ways that may be potentially advantageous to them or to others? You know, I don't know. What I do know is that whenever a, whenever somebody comes into the market who has a lot of money. They have the chance to change the market. That's one of the things that's really interesting about the hobby. You likely can't do that the same way in the stock market. Even if you're a multimillionaire, it's hard to then go into the stock market and say, well, I'm going to take this company that has a market cap of $5 billion and I'm going to affect what it's worth. It's very hard to do that. But in cards, where most cards have a population that's a lot lower, or, or uh, meaningful cards of a population that's a lot lower, it is possible to change the market. And many of us have the chance to do that. So does a fund have the chance to do that? Absolutely. Is that good for them? A very good question. Um, in the end of the day, a fund has to be able to move out of its assets at a price that's higher than what they paid for them. So moving the market by buying isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, when I was looking at creating a fund, um, one of the questions that um, the investor asked me who I was looking at it with was, you know, how much money do you think you could deploy into the market without influencing the market? And I thought about that for a while, and I realized it might not be that much. And that is a little bit of a scary place to be because you know, we really need a lot of these buyers to have the price remain where it is. Um, let's not get lost in thinking that the whole market is blowing up while people are just buying like crazy to hoard and then in the end there's not really real buyers. There has to be real buyers in the end. And that's again to go back to the Zion and Lucas stuff. Like I, Those guys might end up being the greatest investments ever. I'm not going to say they're not. and Even now they might be the greatest investments ever. But you need an end buyer. You need somebody who wants the, to own the card in the end, after the speculation, and after the investment period. Um, and, and to me, as I've progressed throughout my you know, hobby um, tenure, that's where I've landed, is on players who have longer-term um, tenure, players that have more cemented legacies. Uh, investing in the rookies isn't as appealing as it used to be, because I've seen... You know, so many people lose a lot, and I've lost a lot in doing that. It's not a matter of predicting things correctly or incorrectly. It's a matter of 
Um, it's just a matter of it not being as interesting and a matter of kind of the house always wins. You're probably going to lose the longer you do that. So second city sports cards, good question. Funds are here to stay. Funds are here because it is an, it is a, um, a very interesting um, asset class, um, and they have an appetite for it. And I hate to tell you guys this, but there's going to be more and more people who have an appetite for it. Go back and read that article uh, that Andy and I did, the interview that Andy did. Seriously. Okay, CZ underscore carts asked about a question that I was sure I would get. He wanted to know about the MJ sales. What are the MJ sales? Let's talk about it. Um, Mile High Auctions acquired um, for auction an unbelievable Jordan collection. And that same weekend, last weekend, the Michael Jordan Green PMG sold for almost a million bucks. Um, between that PMG Green and those cards that Mile High did, a fair percentage, a very high percentage, of the, of the most key and important Michael Jordan insert and rare parallel type cards sold in a matter of a few days. And frankly, that's something we've never seen before. I mean, in years and years, we have never seen what we saw last weekend. The PMG Red, the PMG Green, the PMG Championship, and the PMG Gold from the subsequent year, they were all available in the period of two days. It was incredible, guys. Um, you had the credentials. You had um, cards that I was particularly interested in because you never see them move the... Um, the gold fusion uh, or the titanium as some people call it you had the playmakers theater um, a jambalaya you had just so many huge cards ending and um, you know it it was really fun on our MJ um, on our MJ uh, conversation thread uh, group in in Insta on Instagram we were all just watching these cards just get bit up like crazy, and all of us were just like, oh my goodness, this is insane. We knew that it would be crazy. We just didn't know how crazy. And because you see some of these cards just never move, um, it was just really interesting to see what they would sell for. So, um, you know, the PMG Red sold for well into the 200,000s. The PMG Championship sold for over 130,000. The... Um, the gold fusion sold for uh, almost a hundred thousand. The the ninety eight PMG sold for over a hundred thousand. I mean, these are huge numbers, guys. And the question, of course, is who is buying these cards? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know who's buying them. I don't know if it's funds. I don't know if it's fractional houses. I don't know if it's wealthy individuals or family offices. I don't know who's buying them. What I know is that the demand is just. It's just incredible. But I'm not talking about just Jordan cards now. I'm talking about anything that is sort of considered investment worthy. Anything that's ultra high end. It's just impossible to, to buy at this point for most of us. Um, the days where you, know, you would get a card that was considered like a, an ultimate 
you know, a card that, that you'd want for your collection for a few thousand dollars just seems like it's over. Um, and it reminds me um, of something that, um, that I've seen a few people talking about lately. It reminds me that you can collect without owning the most expensive stuff, guys. I've always said it's the best hobby in the world, whether you have $5 a, a week uh, or you know $50,000 a week. You can have a great experience with the hobby regardless. And I still mean that. And uh, I've, I've got some questions coming up on that, so I won't, I won't ruin it. But yeah, the MJ sales were, were crazy, man. We're going to do a couple of things in the, in the magazine in the next few months on, on those, I think. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, Jack's Cards 888 says, THT hype. Uh, Talon Horton Tucker uh, hype. Uh, so this is a good question, and I want to actually tell you a story in reference to this. So in 2002, I bought a Kwame Brown Ultimate Collection. Stay with me here for a second. You have to follow me to the punchline for a second. Um, I bought a Kwame Brown Ultimate Collection autograph patch number to 25. I paid, I think I paid $600 for it, which was like the most money I'd ever spent on a card in 2002. I went on my mission, uh, a mission for my church uh, to England. I came back two years later. I still had the... Kwame Brown card, um, and was, uh, you know, disappointed that he hadn't exactly taken off the way that he want the way that we wanted him to while he was in Washington, and the card sold a couple times for a hundred bucks or hundred and fifty dollars, and I thought, oh man, I made this big investment, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose a ton. Then Kwame Brown ended up in L.A. Uh, with the Lakers, and I took that card and I listed it on eBay as fast as I humanly could, as fast as humanly possible, and I got like $500 for the card. Why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because the power, because the power of being an L.A. Laker. As much as we'd like to think of the NBA as sort of this like, um, like fair opportunity sort of state, it's not. If you play for the Lakers you have a chance to be worth a lot more. If you play for the Knicks, you have a chance to be worth a, a lot more than somebody who plays for the for the Hornets. Um, it's all about exposure, and it's about the number of fans that care about you. And the Laker fan base just can go against any fan base in any sport, anywhere. They're passionate to the core. They are crazy, crazy passionate. And you combine that with the fact that Let's be real. The Lakers need some guard play. And they've got this guard who just goes and scores 30 points in a preseason game. It's very interesting. The question, the only question that matters is this. Can he sustain this? And the answer is pro- the answer's probably not because he's you know, he's going to be playing, sharing the court with, with Davis and LeBron, obviously. Um, but I'm telling you guys, like, if this guy can play, and if he becomes a real, like, important cog in their system, and if he has star qualities, yes, like, his stuff could be worth a, just a ton of money, because Laker fans are going to spend money on a young guy. I mean, last year it was Caruso, right? Everybody wanted Alex Caruso cards, and you're like, really? Like, 
this guy gets on the court every now and then and scores like 7 or 10 points and people get excited. But if you get somebody out there who's every once in a while dropping 20-something points and he's in his second year, like, watch out, guys. Because, yeah, he could that could, that could be a huge deal. Um, having said that, the Kwame Brown card that I sold for 500 it didn't go up after that, right? Um, just because there's hype around an L.A. prospect doesn't mean that it's a great long-term uh, investment. In fact, some of those are some of the very worst investments that you could you could uh, make. So it only depends on how he's going to actually play going forward, whether he's going to remain a Laker and those types of things. All right, good good question. Next question. Next question. Oh, I got off the shoot. I gotta go find it again. Hold on. Bear with me. I had the questions up in front of me and then I lost them for a second. Okay, I got them. So, THT hype. After that, uh, Drake's underscore sports underscore PC. Uh, he asks, in 20 years, will collectors value LeBron and possibly Luka over guys like Wilt and Kareem? I have no idea. What I do know is that we did that that project on market caps. We looked at the market caps of really key rookie cards. Jordan was was easily number one. Jordan's 86 flare. Not even close. What was very interesting to me, though, is besides that card, the newer the card on the iconic list, so I took the top 12, right? The, the newer the card, the more likely, or the, the higher the market cap was going to be. So, like, the market cap of, like, a, a Lou Alcindor rookie was nowhere near as high as a Luka Doncic prism. And so, you know, how does that relate to each card individually? I, I guess I don't really know the answer to that. What I do know is that, um, like, the new, new collectors care about new players, right? And although I like vintage guys, I think that they're undervalued or underrated or whatever, new people don't really care about that as much. And that makes sense, right? Like, they, cards are more considered, like, owning a stock in the player. Once a player doesn't play anymore, why would you need a stock, right? This is what I always go back to with this like idea of like, you know, there has to be an end user, and and that really does address sort of the question here, which is, well, what what, what are they going to be worth in twenty years? And he and 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 Drake's Sports BC is asking like, you know, with Luca and LeBron, like some of the key names, are they are they probably going to be worth more? I think that. Um, you know, over the like all their cards for sure. If you add them all together, they're gonna be worth way more. I think that I think that they're probably gonna hold value that's higher than those guys, but they still have to perform, right? LeBron is cemented. LeBron is cemented as one of the best players of all time. There's nothing he can do to undo that. Luca still, we don't know. He has a chance, but he's not there yet. So, um, but yeah, I think I think they could be. I think it's likely that they will be. Um, because these guys that are collecting now, I don't think they're going to suddenly go back and want to collect uh, Kareem or or, uh, or or Wilt. But some of them will, and you know, there's always going to be like guys like me who who just want you know who want to own the really rare, really cool card. So I don't know. We we shall see, man. Okay, Blender of Zombie. Uh, do you think the Jordan Illuminator T9B will ever come close to the recent PMG sales? Uh, head head blowing up emoji. I don't know, man. Obviously, the PMG sales were pretty crazy. You know, 
pretty crazy for me to look at that too. Um, you know, the the triumvirate, the illuminators, it, such an interesting card. Um, extremely rare. I think the thing that we find with cards, with with a few cards that fit in this category, though, is they are confusing to folks, and the fact that they're confusing hurts their value. Now, I know what the Illuminator looks like. Blender of Zombies knows what it looks like. But not everybody does. Not everybody knows how to differentiate. And I think that hurts it. You know, it's... Um, if, if Stadium Club could do it over again, if Tops could do it over again, they probably would like to make it so that it's more easy to understand. The fact that the graders get that set wrong over and over again, I mean, I, I estimate they've gotten those cards wrong literally close to half the time. Um, it's just, I think that hurts the value. Having said that, ultra rare, really cool. I think I think the other thing that's not positive about that set is that Tops a few years ago let some cards out of their vaults. Um, I shouldn't say their vaults. Some of their replacement type cards Cards, and the reason that we know this is that there were cards that were supposed to be numbered that came out unnumbered. Um, it's really disappointing that Tops let that happen. Um, most years of Refractors had a few cards get out that shouldn't have gotten out. And I suspect that some of some of the Triumvirates, in fact, I know that they did uh, because we saw uncut sheets of them. I don't know if any cut ones got out. But, um, but having said that, as far as Rare Jordans from, the, from his playing days go that are really nice looking and more um, affordable uh, it definitely fits in that case do i ever think it'll get to the pmgs i don't but you never know three underscore co underscore la latest thoughts on vintage well if you look in and i forgot to highlight this in the the, the talk about the magazine uh something very interesting has happened with the vintage uh, index over the last few months um take a look at that let me know what you think and um, the only thing that I will add to that is uh, I wonder what the 75th anniversary team will do to Vintage, um, both in the short term and in the long term. I wonder. I think it's interesting. All right, Darth Brizzo says, What do you think are good areas of focus for those priced out of Goatee Supercards? I think there's a couple of really good answers to this. And I'll tell you what, I, what my favorite answer is. There are sets from the late 90s and early 2000s that are very good looking, very hard to find, and not very expensive. For me, when you can find a set, an insert set, that is rare, difficult to find, um, good looking, and inexpensive, that is the trifecta. I've talked about this before. Those three things, rare, uh, that you know, difficult to find, um, good looking, and inexpensive, Go go do that, go collect that stuff because if you can if you can find a passion and a joy around something that's not expensive, that's what you want to do. Um, and the great thing is that a lot of times when people collect that type of thing, in the end that thing ends up being worth money down the line as well because you go oh yeah that is cool that is rare why isn't that more expensive and then other people start collecting it. And, and it goes up. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. There are many sets from the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, there's probably some Panini sets that are like that too, but um, they haven't been as interesting to me. But um, that's what I would do. So good question. All right, and then Paul Catcher underscore sports card says, 
Remembrances of past crazes. Yao, Blake, Grant Hill. Or maybe not players, but products. Yeah, man, we could talk about things that went crazy that came just crashing down to earth till the cows come home. I have literally dozens of players and products and things in my mind. Um, you know, he mentions a few of them here and for different reasons. Uh, so let's let's talk about a few players and a few products. Um, Blake. Blake's interesting because Blake took over the world for a year or two. Uh, he was the biggest story on SportsCenter, it felt like, forever. The the, the dunks, the, the alley-oops, he and DeAndre Jordan yelling at each other after huge dunk, after huge dunk. His cards just taking off. And since then, guess what? He's had a very successful career. Blake Griffin is probably close to a top 10 power forward of all time. Uh, don't scoff at that. Go make a list. He's probably pretty close. Um, if not 10, he's definitely somewhere around 15. He is He's a great player. And his cards aren't worth very much. It's a reminder that those whose cards end up really being worth something are few and far between and is a cautionary tale. Um, I'll give you a set to think about. Uh, when people think of early Panini sets that have really taken off in value and are considered iconic. The first ones that they typically think of are like the 2012 Prism set, right? But before 2012 Prism, there was Totally Certified. And Totally Certified in 2010, I think, uh, did their first set layout where they had a black one of one and a green out of five and a gold out of 25, and they paralleled the base set. And there were people online on block cards and all over the internet talking about how the greens were going to be just like the PMGs of 1997, the green PMGs. And there were a lot of people who believed this. And some of that stuff went crazy, super expensive. Um, I bought a couple of boxes of that and amazingly pulled a green Kobe Bryant. I talked about that in a previous episode. That stuff has not done what 2012 Prism gold cards have done. Um, or anything from 2012 Prism. There's Prism base cards that are worth more than those Prism green, than the totally certified green cards are. Uh, it turns out that rarity is not the only thing that matters, and looking like something in the past is not the only thing that matters. But you need people to have real uh, a real want and demand uh, for product. And so, you know, even, you know, 10 years later, even though you would think that that set would, 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 would really still be worth something, it isn't worth anywhere near what you would have expected. When you look at the growth that, like, a 2012 Prism has had, and then you think of the lack of growth on a 2010 totally certified, it's interesting. You've got to pick the right product if, if that's what you're after. All right. Let's keep going through these questions. Good questions, guys. Good questions. Um... Oh, you know what? I skipped around a little bit. Let's see. There we go. I might have missed some. I hope I didn't. I probably did. Calvin French Fries, F-R-I-I-S. Are NBA hoop serial numbered rookies a good investment? You were the only person who asked this one. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's I don't ever like to comment on what I think is a good investment because I don't ever want to affect the market. My question is always, do you like it? Is there something about it that's interesting to you and that's going to continue to be compelling to you? Is it something that you're going to want to collect for a long time? 
If it is, then I think it's a great investment. It's a great investment of your time and your energy and all that other stuff. But if you're just asking, you know, is this something that I think is going to go up in value? I just have no idea. It doesn't seem like it's likely because it's not a well-known set that people are really excited about. But it could be. You know, weird things happen all the time. I'm not perfect. I don't know how to do those things perfectly. All right. 100 underscore cardboards asks, do you see a difference between a consolidator or sorry, a, a consolidator and an investor? Please explain. When I first read this, I, I thought it just said a collector and investor, which is something that we've talked about before. A consolidator and an investor. You know, I think somebody who consolidates is probably, that's probably something that they're doing for a period of time. But that isn't, I don't think that's necessarily who they are. Right? They had to they had to collect something in the first place to then to then move up. And most people aren't collecting something just so they can consolidate later on. Um, that's that's not something that I think is um, intentional or deliberate. Um, I think I think collectors and investors and consolidators. I think don't know that we all like. I don't know if it's great to put labels on all, on, all, on on everything. Um, I am somebody who I definitely think I'm a collector. I've owned a lot of cards for five plus years. Um, my best cards I've I've owned for four plus years. I love owning the cards that I own. But I definitely am like somebody who's invested, right? I'm definitely somebody who's arbitraged, you know, who's flipped things quickly. I'm um, I'm definitely somebody who's consolidated. I'm definitely a collector. I don't have anything against consolidating. I don't have any, anything against investing, um, but I but I believe in I believe in collecting. Um, I think that there's room for everyone. What I don't think there's room for is um, is when people are dishonest and when people say that they're going to do one thing and then they do another. Um, I don't think it's okay for people to intentionally try to drive prices from one place to the next. Um, I do think that uh, consolidating is something that sometimes you have to do. I've kind of not willfully consolidated, but like gotten to the point where I, I really, and, and I've, I've had an opportunity to get something and then realized I have no other way to get that thing but then to sell these other things. That's me consolidating when I have to. And of course, I think that's okay because that's what I do. But that's also how I collect, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but somebody who's an investor, that could be viewed in, in different ways. So anyway, I hope that, hope that explains something. I don't know if I did a good job on that one, but yeah. Okay, Shea Wave Logs. Hey, Shea. Shea says, was the Giannis Prism Mosaic Black over overpriced compared to the Black one of one autograph? I will tell you this. I had a chance to to acquire the mosaic. It was actually um, sent to me from a good friend. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before that, but um, I said in a message, I said in a, a message on my Instagram that it was two years ago. But it doesn't feel like it was a whole two years ago. It feels like it was less than that. But I had an opportunity to acquire it for fifty five thousand, which is obviously a crazy amount of money for a basketball card. Okay. This is an insane amount of money for a basketball card. I did think about it. I talked to another well-known Giannis collector. He also had the chance to buy it. He also passed on it. 
and <laughs> both of us totally kick ourselves today. The mosaic wasn't viewed as well as as you'd think. Um, but since then, mosaic has become its own product, and mosaic is a popular product. And I think that people view that card very different than they did um, a little while ago. Um, I would have said at that time that the autograph was worth far more you know, back when I had the chance to acquire it. But, um, you know, clearly that wasn't the case last week. Um, I I still would take the autograph, me personally. Um, people are like, but it's a sticker. Okay, yeah, I get it. Like, so is every rookie autograph ever out of prison, right? Um, I just think it's really cool. It, it's Giannis has that long-form autograph on his early prison prism autographs i know they're on sticker but i'd rather have the really cool autograph on a sticker than some of the other autographs that are out there right whoever they have a really shorthand autograph or one on a sticker i think it's a good question some people are like no you just have to have it on a card no you just have to have it on a card um maybe i think it's a preference thing i think the, the on card autograph of Giannis on the in the black is really cool um i think they should be closer than they were so that's my take Slab underscore City 95. Does Allen Iverson get enough hobby love? I think people who are retired mainly get enough hobby love, right? Because they have people who collect them for who they are. I think that current players get a lot more because they're viewed as a stock. Nobody views Allen Iverson as a stock anymore. He's somebody who played, who had a great career, and um, was uh, an icon and is an icon. Um but he's not he doesn't have stock anymore so it when it comes to viewing him through the lens of like old players he gets more love than players like stockton and malone and he didn't have as good a career as them so um you know i in that way you'd say well he actually gets more love than he should get but in terms of like his impact on society or his impact on um style or um who, who we are he had a tremendous impact. Very few players ever had had a, 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 as great of an influence on um, the culture of the NBA as Allen Iverson. Um, you know, so you you know you have to try to evaluate all those things. And he's extremely collected, and people love him. And uh, but he has a lot of stuff, right? He has um, he has a ton of cards that are worth collecting. Is uh, kind of like Kobe. His his career really spans, you know, from nineteen ninety six till today. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts on on AI. I have one really nice AI card, and for me, that's enough. But um, I know a lot of people who love him and have, and he has huge collectors. All right, I'm gonna try to fly through these last few questions. How many do I have left? Oh gosh, guys, there's a lot of questions here. And there's, I know there's a couple that I'm missing from my from my PMs too that I'm gonna try to find. Okay, uh, Ellie Vanjo says, "Hi, I know that there is a cool post of the best Panini basketball inserts, but what is your opinion, top five? I have actually recently asked somebody who I believe is an expert on this to write an article for the magazine about this. So I am not an expert on this one, Joe." But um, but I think there are other people who are interesting to listen to about this. So uh, if you subscribe to the to the to the um, to 
the magazine. You'll see something on that in the next few months, hopefully. All right, Ray's underscore cards. What's up, Ray? Ray says, X-Fractors versus no-numbered autos of LeBron. Which will be more desirable in five years? Um, I don't know. I can tell you what I like more. I like LeBron's autographs. Guys, I people are so focused on how Panini won't be able to make LeBron cards after his career is over. And that's worth noting. I agree. But, like, he's played basketball for 18 years. And his, you know, his career spans from the beginning of Exquisite till today. You know, he he does have a lot of stuff. He has a lot of rare cards. Um, I have some rare LeBron cards that I really love, right? Um, he doesn't have a lot of autographs. And the question is, will he ever have more autographs? And we obviously don't know the answer to that. Um, but if it was me, I'm thinking about this, you know, when he says, when Ray asks, X-Fractors versus, you know, um, no-numbered autographs. Like, I'd rather have an autograph. Now, I want it to be NBA licensed, especially because LeBron's autograph, after he moved away from being NBA licensed, really just took a turn for the worse. LeBron's autograph in his early years, which it, it switched, he had at least three different variations in his first couple of years. Um, his his first few instances are really nice, but as he gets into his non-NBA licensed stuff, his autograph isn't as high a quality. I'm not saying it's a bad card to own because owning any LeBron autograph is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But um, for me, I would choose the auto. I don't know what will be more desirable in five years. I am not a fortune teller, but I, I would rather own an autograph personally. Most underrated inserts... Oh, this is Garrett underscore NBA. Most underrated insert sets of the 90s. My answer for this one's really, really uh, specific, uh, Garrett. And it is that... Um, any rare, like ultra rare set that doesn't have Jordan in it is, um, is undervalued. Um, the ones that I've been working on, and I'm, I'm not telling you this so that you can go buy them, but I'm, I am almost done with them and I do love the sets because they kind of fit my criteria, right? What are my criteria again? They're rare, right? They're really difficult to find. That's number one. Number two. Um, they uh, aren't too expensive and number three they're really good looking so for me the number one set by far that fits these this criteria is the 1997 uh, Metal Universe Gold Universe set that came out of retail it's a 10 card set each of the 10 cards in the set um, surfaces two to three times a year um, so at any given time on eBay you're going to find two or three of the cards, um, maybe even four or five of the cards on eBay uh, in, in a buy it now form format, but you're not going to be able to get the whole set. Um, you may only find one or two, and the cards are beautiful. It's the same technology as the 97 PMG red and greens. The only difference is they're gold, and they're a 10-card set that are more plentiful but still rare, um, and they cost pennies on the dollar, maybe penny on the dollar compared to what the other ones compared to what the PMGs sell for um, 
The other set that I love is the, it's not from the 90s, but it's from the early 2000s, and that is the um, 2000 Beam Team set. It's number 500. It's one of the coolest die-cut sets out there. Um, out of Hoops, uh, there's the Prime Twine set, also out of 500. That's another set. All three of those sets are sets that I am working on currently. Um, and I love working on them because they're great-looking sets. They're unique and unusual and rare and good-looking. Another thing that I'll point you towards is Early Mystique. Early Mystique had some stuff that's not super rare, but still pretty rare and not very expensive at all. All right, good question. All right, I'm going to skip some of these. Okay, Cardic Sports Cards asks, most underappreciated NBA player in the hobby, I say CP3 and Duncan. Man, I will tell you, I love both of those picks. I love both those picks. Duncan has hardly any key cards. And even the ones that are key still sell for seemingly nothing. But CP3, I think, is even a better pick because, um, you know, his lack of playoff success, um, you know, the fact that he's never been to a finals, for example, I think people, like, people think then that he's not an all-time great because of that. Like, Chris Paul is one of the best point guards of all time. Um, like, one of the best five-point guards of all time. He is unbelievable. His longevity is unbelievable, and he's just been just the man year after year after year. He's not super likable. He does some annoying things, but he's incredible, guys. I love Chris Paul. Um, I love the way he plays. I actually hate watching him play sometimes because he plays against my team, and, and he just knows how to get 16 feet away from the hoop, and he just never misses that shot. I swear, he, like every time Chris Paul shoots an 18-footer against us, Anywhere between 15 and 18 feet. I feel like it's a, it's like a layup. He, like, never misses. Um, all right. Paul Catcher underscore sports cards again. I wanted to ask this. I wanted to answer this one because I thought this was a really good question. He says, is industry due for production innovation? Sticker autos and relic, relic cards getting tired. Here's the thing, Paul. Like, we're more out of the autograph and jersey world than I thought we'd ever be. I thought that's where we'd live forever. Like people don't even seem to care about those things anymore. Like auto some you know, we just I just answered a question about how a Giannis autograph card was going to be worth less than the regular Giannis card. We're seeing that over and over again. People don't want the autograph. They don't want the jersey. They just want the rare piece of cardboard. They just want the well designed, good looking piece of cardboard. And I think it's awesome. If I'm being really honest, I think we've swayed probably too far I think the um, I think the pendulums just swung too far I still love autographs and rare autograph patch cards there's times where you can find a a rare autograph patch card that's really good looking really good looking for like the price of a silver prism there's nothing wrong with a silver prism it's a great card I just I think it's I, I think the I think the pendulums probably swung too far just my opinion. All right. Collector underscore cat underscore Marlowe. When can you buy, where can you buy insurance when shipping out expensive cards and when is it worth it? This is a very personal thing and people do different things. I had a guy who sent me a package, a few thousand dollar package recently and he totally insured it. I know other people who will tell you that the moment you insure something, that is the moment that it's likely then going to get taken good friend of mine in the hobby recently had um, a new collector 
send him a package that was insured, and of course it went missing. Ugh, guys, it's just hard to know. Um, it depends on who you're sending to. It depends on what service you're using. It's a really hard question, and I would just tell you that whatever you do, it's a risk. It's always a risk in this hobby, unless you're buying, you know, unless you have insurance from a third party, and there are other entities that offer a third party insurance, so it's worth looking at that. All right, and uh, card underscore culture, culture spelled, spelled with a K says, would love to hear what you're, about your organization. What do you do when you get a card? Scans, etc. So this I think is a, is actually like uh, it's a pretty practical question. I think it's a really good question because um, you know maybe not everybody asks this question, but um, I do think that like I think it's worth asking. You see a guy like Nat who like every time he gets a card, he um, you know he scans it both sides. And, um, I don't know if he puts it on Instagram right away, but he puts it on Instagram at some point. I'm not as organized, but still really pretty organized about it. Whenever I get a card in, I do take a picture and I and I get that image up on Instagram. Um, I do not um, I do not have a scanner. I just take a picture just with my phone. Um, I have one of those light boxes. Um, you can, there's some place on Instagram that, that, uh, advertises them, but you can buy them a lot cheaper just on eBay. They're, I forget what they're called. They're called like picture boxes, light boxes or something. They come to you. They're like little plastic thing that comes with different backgrounds. It just, it, it makes it so that the lighting around your card is a lot better. Um, but sometimes honestly, I like to just take the image at my, um, at my work where the card is delivered. Um. I like that because some of the lighting I can get in my office is actually pretty darn good. And I like it with the wood background sometimes. I wish kind of all my cards were, were taken in that light. Um, but it's not always right. So, you know, it just depends it Depends on what you want. All right. And the last question for tonight, or the last uh, set of questions, comes from Mike Crosby, CDCD underscore cards. He says, for your podcast, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on two topics how you decide which cards to consign and which to sell yourself. Let's start there. Okay, so I um, am a huge proponent of consignment. I've talked about it a million times. I think I pro probably talked about it too much because the consignment companies are completely overburdened with cards, and they just they just can't they just can't keep up. Um, <laughs> went on my little one of my little. Uh, one of my little tangents there. I, um, I, to get back to his question, not, not just that I like consignment, but how do I decide where I send it? It just depends. Um, a lot of it's a math game, right? I did an episode on consignment that I would still recommend listening to, although it's outdated. Um, if you're selling something that's only a few bucks, it just doesn't make sense to do it anywhere besides Compsy. They're just the best at it. You know, if you can send something to them that's two dollars and get your dollar twenty or whatever it is that you net, I just think that's amazing. They're incredible um, because, and you say, well, that's a huge percentage. Yeah, but like, you don't have any have to pay any shipping. 
right? Because it's just sitting there. It doesn't have to get shipped to the buyer. And so the numbers game works in your benefit because the buyer, of course, is just looking at how much money they're going to spend total. And since they don't have to pay shipping, it ends up being the best deal. Um, there are times where I... Hear me out on this real quick. There's times where like I'll be looking at a card and I'll look and I'll say, you know, I think there's one person out there that's going to be willing to spend $200 on this. But I don't think that there's going to be somebody who's willing. And there's, I don't think there's going to be a second person that's going to kind of pay more than a hundred. Well, if the the top bidder bids two hundred and the second bidder bids a hundred, then the card's going to sell for a hundred and one dollars. And that isn't great, especially if if you just put it out at a buy it now, they, somebody would pay two hundred. In those cases, you want to try to get the buyer who's willing to pay the two hundred to buy it. And so. You know, there's different ways to do that. Cards that I sell on my own, um, you know, honestly, I end up selling cards on my own because I just am out of time and I need cash, right? Like, I just need cash quickly because I need to either pay off the line of credit that I've used way more than I should historically or because I need cash for a card. Like, when I was getting the Steph Curry Gold Prism card, I just needed cash, like, immediately, and so I was trying to avoid the consignment companies because I just needed cash. I did a deal with a guy um, just just a couple days ago who is clearly buying something big and he's selling stuff and he's selling it fast. He needs money for something. He's buying a big card. And I was glad that I could help him and glad that I could get the cards from him. Um, but he didn't want to send stuff to the consignment company because he needed the cash quickly. So it has more to do with circumstances, honestly. And then his second question is, when you were building your collection, did you find a sweet spot where cards seem to move the fastest? For example, I've noticed that if the any popular player I list competitive price between 150 and 750 seems to move quickly. Anything over a thousand seems to take a bit longer. If off eBay, I'm looking forward to your show. So, uh, and thank you, Mike, for the thought for the well thought out question. I, um, you know, what's interesting about this is I actually did. Th- think of a sweet spot for cards uh, once upon a time and that sweet spot was 30 to 40 dollars i felt like there was a lot of stuff that i could buy on on ebay in the 8 to 15 dollar range that i could list at a buy it now of 30 to 40 dollars and get people to hit the buy it now over and over and over again it was it really was a sweet spot but now it's different you know when i as i build my collection as i built built my collection recently I haven't thought about a sweet spot for a long time. I, I, I've just bought things that I, I mean, I bought things in different categories, right? Like whenever there's an easy arbitrage situation, I've bought that thing. And then there's times where I've like invested in rookies and done well on that. There's times where I've invested in wax and I've done well on that. I've just done whatever I thought was the the most underrated thing that gave me the best chance to maximize value. And um, that's hard because people want you to say like, well, did you grade? Did you do this? Did you do that? Yeah, like I did everything, right? Like I did, I did everything and I made mistakes and I didn't do all the things that I should have done. In retrospect, what I should have done, I mentioned this before, I just never thought that like, the mass-produced rookies were going to ever be a thing. You know, like, the 
the Steph Curry tops rookie and the LeBron James Chrome rookie just were never interesting investments to me. They were never interesting from a card perspective either. They're just like they're cards that are differentiated by their centering, and that has never ever been compelling to me. But it is. It clearly is very compelling to a lot of people. Um, grades are really compelling to a lot of people. Having something that's a 9, 5, or a 10 really means something. I just don't care very much about those things. Um, so, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know that it has to do with a specific price or a specific sweet spot. Um, for me now, it's more just, and, and it has been for a long time, it's been more about owning things that I like to own. And this advice that I gave in a pre- previous episode about like wanting to buy things with your head and your heart, like I think that's pretty spot on. So easy arbitrage, I still do that. Like if, if I if I can buy something for a hundred that I believe will sell for two hundred immediately, I will do that. Um, like something pops up on eBay, it's got a low buy it now. You see it, you snag it, right? Like that that is compelling. The arbitrage thing is but buying something for. 50 that I'm going to grade that might be worth 500 and might be worth 100 like I just don't care I don't have time for it it doesn't it's not compelling to me it doesn't mean anything um, and the the like I said the price range there's not really anything there alright I said I wanted to go for half an hour I'm an hour and nine minutes in because I am the most long winded fool you've ever listened to if you actually made it to this part in the episode you are incredible in fact if you made it to this part of the episode I'm just going to just ad-lib this right now. I'm going to make you guys a deal. If you made it to this part of the episode, you can have the next 12 months of Basketball Card Fanatic for 80 bucks. 80 bucks. Totally worth it, guys. Tons of hours of work in each episode, or in, in each issue. 80 bucks. It's yours. To nobody else but to you guys right now. Alright? Thank you guys for your time. You're all awesome. Thank you for listening to the to the podcast today and until next time happy to